All right, friends, Zig starting off the interview. Today on the show, we have Richard Lloyd from television. He's an early pioneer in the uh, CBGB punk scene. He's played in a vast amount of projects and has a successful solo career. Richard has a book out called Everything is Combustible. It's an autobio set up in a memoir sitch, so it doesn't, it's not super chronological, but reads as stories being shared. And it, it's really engaging in that way. It's really easy to engage with these stories and follow this chain of his career, but also jumps back and forth. And the stories are ridiculous. He, Richard like hung out with Jimi Hendrix and John Lee Hooker and Buddy Guy and all these guitar gurus, which he then later became. Um, so in our chat, we kind of bounce in between all this stuff I read out of his book and him uh, elaborating on some of it. Some of it may not make sense. Like, there's uh, certain stories that you may have to read. And I thought he would elaborate a little bit more on it, but it didn't. So, more reason to check out his book. But it was a complete honor to chat with Richard. Um, so many of these interviews, if you guys have been following, like with Glenn Morrow, Dave Thomas, Chris Butler, Don Ralph, all these guys worked with Richard. So, it was really cool to kind of hear the outside perspective and then get the chat with him. Before we get to the interview, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44, Studio 44 Cleveland. You can reach out to Studio 44 by studio44cleveland at gmail.com or studio44cleveland on um, Facebook. And you can have Jay Sparrow for any of your audio needs. If it's streaming, video, or recording, or if you need a guy to be every other member of your band, Jay can make it happen. Studio 44 made this podcast sound listenable. They'll make yours sound listenable. Studio 44. And if you guys can like, rate, review, subscribe, and follow the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to awesome guests to share their insights with you. Um, it'd be much appreciated. So without further ado, here's my chat with Richard Lloyd. Well, then we'll jump right into it. Um, so you started with drums. Or no, you started with piano, right? Well, it was a... Uh junior piano, not a full-scale piano, Is it, it, uh, but I used to play one note and just listen to it fade and think to myself, as long as it continues to fade, it's in, in existence, it's got to be permanent, which was an interesting concept at the time. So it resonates out and doesn't stop. It exists somewhere else as a smaller frequency, you think? Well, in volume, it never really stops moving. Oh. Whoa. Everything is vibrating all the time anyway. Right. So, but that only lasted like when I was uh, <clears throat> four or five, three, four and five. And by then, I, I stopped using it. It broke. Yeah. <laughs> now, did the did, is that the thought you had when you're four and five, thinking those notes ring out? Because, like, in your book, you get as a as a as a kid, you have some deep thoughts. Yeah. Well, I had deep thoughts from the beginning. I mean, I looked up and I didn't understand adults, and I can remember before I could talk, to asking myself, how come I understand what they're saying? I mean, there's a word here or there that I wouldn't know, but mostly I, it is like came ready-made. 
which was pretty strange. Right. So it was almost like knowing everything that was going on as opposed to trying to figure it out. It's... Well, it was also like, how do I know this? How do I know something without knowing it, without learning it? Right. And be, but your brain is so young and it's uh, malleable. And I guess it just happens from the surroundings that you get shaped. Yeah. Yeah, you uh, you have all these extra neurons and you prune them off for what you need as like a typical like brain development. It's interesting that you came double ready to handle your environment. Yeah, right. <laughs> Was it, um, now I read that you had synesthesia. Did that resonate with you? Synesthesia? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I still have a touch of it. But, uh, I mean, we're, where musical notes have color tone to them. Right. Did you see that with the yeah. piano when you were young? Uh, I can't remember. Because, like, I read that you uh, you saw drums with colors. Because drums was, like, the next instrument, right? After piano? Right. That's right. And drums had color, too. So one day, then they, they just drained out. All the color drained away. And it was cardboard and dry and uh, tone deaf. That was weird. That is weird. <laughs> but that was it. That was. Then you moved on to the guitar, right? That's when I moved on to the guitar. You know, my my cousins had a guitar between them. There were two cousins, two brothers, and uh, they had a guitar and were going to start a rockabilly band. This is back in the like late fifties, and I was really jealous of that. So one night I did us we had a sleepover, and uh, we passed the guitar around. I mean I couldn't play anything. They showed me like three chords, uh, C, G, and D, and uh, as they drifted off to sleep, I had the guitar and I. I took it into uh, the bathroom so I wouldn't disturb them. It was an acoustic. Oh, okay. So it's really and the loud. next thing I know, next thing I know, they're knocking on the door. It's the morning, <laughs> and I'd spent the whole night playing those three chords in the in the bathroom. Did you get them? So I guess I, I was desperate to be a guitar player. Did you get them down? A whole night of strumming. Yeah, that's what <laughs> happened. That's awesome. I, I would have to move my left hand fingers with my right hand sometimes. Uh, to get them in the right spot, get them anchored to get them in, in the there. right spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, especially with chords, chords are hard to learn at first. You know, there's a specific arrangement of fingers, and you got to shift it to another in a split second. You know, like that mm -hmm. muscle memory takes, especially when you first start. I remember doing that, switching from the D right. chord. And trying to get it to the A, you know, like when you're using the three fingers for A at first, and you're like, oh, that's... Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, you, in your book, you have an interesting uh, habit of getting really, like, at least in your younger uh, younger years, getting really into a thing and becoming fairly good at it and then leaving. Like, I noticed and that with... Uh, yeah, Did you uh, say leave it? Or, yeah, leave well, there's it. A, there's a lot of uh, areas in the world worthy of study true i want to know everything of course that's impossible because 
you have a limited life span and a lim limited uh, intake of impressions, you know, as right. uh, so you can't you can't know everything, but you can know how to know and learn how to learn. And then uh, you can learn anything. I think that's well said. Because however you pick something up, music is a really good example of a practice of learning a vast amount of things to fit um, uh -huh. fit one vague thing. So, what? Say that again. <laughs> I said sorry. Learning music because there's so much into it, right? Like, and there's so many different factors it, in the skill set of learning. Like taking yeah. a, taking apart a song and learning how it works, you can build that to do whatever like whatever music you want to do and so it's like you you have this dedicated um process to tear something apart and see how it works and you can build it in any way you want so it's like a vague you can do what you want with it but that skill set of learning and tearing something apart and seeing how all the mechanics work pays off vastly in the field of music and that can be adapted right. to a lot of different fields in life i see what you're saying and i agree with you Oh, thanks. Uh, you, you get the ABCs of something, you know, you can form words and sentences and paragraphs with enough practice. So when when you moved to, or no, when you met Velvet, when, is that when, like, at that point, guitar is really the thing, right? Absolutely. And in the book, you tell the story about how he was saying he knew Jimi Hendrix and everyone else was like, no way. And he did. And like the phone's being passed around and you heard his voice on the phone. That had to be like right. bonkers. Like the guy I just heard on these records forever is on this speaker reacting to me. No, it wasn't quite like that. But no, uh, no. I mean, I'm not a person who goes into awe at another human being. I don't have many, uh, I mean, I, I can see uh, heroism right. in what people do, but uh, I'm not uh, starstruck by it. Although in, in Hendrix's case, there was something to be said that he was <laughs> from another planet. Yeah. For real or another reality. Because you, you've had a lot of interactions with him. Was, like, talking with him, like, when, like, it's interesting with Hendrick's interviews. Like, sometimes he, like, says this thing that makes complete sense, and then it seems like he's talking around a thing, and you got to know the lingo to understand what he's talking yeah. about. He had a certain lingo going, <laughs> that's for sure, and blah, blah, woof, woof. It, that's pretty amazing, like, just through, like, Velvet, like, to get this secondhand knowledge and, like, to say that's like not too many a lot of people quote learning from Hendrix you know learning from the records but to kind of get like a secondhand source that's pretty oh, incredible yeah, yeah it was a, a special time in my life that's for sure being a young I mean I was a teenager you know right to be around those kind of people was uh, you know awesome now, when you did, you came out with a Hendrix covered record, covers record, years later. How much of those lessons panned out, or maybe maybe made more sense when you put them in the context of like playing Hendrix's stuff? 
Quite sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, some of the things that Jimmy used to do were invaluable. I mean, especially his vertical knowledge, that is to say his knowledge up and down the fretboard rather than across it. Quite spectacular. Now, you have an interesting, like, a... Um with like Eastern culture and like meditation and yoga and breathing exercises. Right. Um, do you, have you ever dove into Eastern music? Very little. As a matter of fact, I used to, uh, I listened to a lot of Indian music at a certain point in my life. Sitar music. mostly. Yeah. That, uh, I have a sitar, but it's, uh, I don't hardly play it. It's uh, large and unwieldy. <laughs> it, it's hard and like the reason it's i brought, very hard the reason i was going to ask is that whole thing's vertical you pretty much are That's rocking right. one string but you're playing the scale like you really got to stretch your arm out and you're moving up and down this giant guitar almost but like it's all vertical exactly. and very profound instrument right it i i was always blown away like once I really saw you were kind of playing one string and the rest kind of support, you know, it looks so intimidating because there's like 20 uh-huh. some strings going up the neck, but you're really only playing one. That's right. So with one, the, uh, <laughs> unless you're playing chords. Or right. Intervals. Well, yeah, because the, they got the two you can kind of, I got a really crappy one that I got off the internet. It's kind of like a squire. It's got like a flat, a flat body. It doesn't got a whole gourd, right? And it's just like a, fl- uh-huh. <laughs> a flat sitar. Like a like a guitar sitar? Kind of. It's like a sit it's like an actual sitar. Like it's like the neck with the, the carved out hollowed thing uh-huh. the and the movable frets. But um right. but the body yeah, yeah. of it is like an electric, like an electric guitar almost, where it's like almost a solid piece of wood. So it goes from uh-huh. a solid piece into this like sitar neck and uh right is it that plug in yeah you can plug it in the pickup's awful but you can plug it in you could replace the pickup that's for sure yeah i don't know if i want to move it, that that bridge no that i understand but it, it's interesting like the approach to singing or or phrasing music vertically like that and hendrix did it in such a profound way with like how we phrase things and like it, it, it it's almost singing in a way right yeah he had a very expressive voice on the instrument much like a, a coltrane uh thought patterns you know right do you ever run into i mean you ever see coltrane i haven't no yeah. i never I didn't get the chance. I didn't follow. I listened to jazz at one point in my life uh, quite a bit. My stepfather was into it. but uh, And he was into stuff like uh, Brubeck and, and uh, Time Out, stuff like that. Uh, but And I listened to records, but I really never went to see much jazz. I mean, I was always into rock rock and roll the brubeck thing kind of takes from all these different cultures as well and puts that odd time signature stuff in it 
as a drummer, did you dive into that? Oh, sure. Well, I took lessons. Right. For three years. <clears throat> and we studied time signatures. They're all easily, it's, I was good in math. So it was very easy for me that way. Like five, five, four is really a waltz with an extra half <laughs> of measure. Yeah. So you can figure these things out pretty easily by, by subdivision. Right. It's a, it's interesting, like how that feel really shifts, though, when you don't when you're not as like a clear cut, like able to like visualize it like that. Like that feel, that one extra hit can really throw someone off, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Because everyone's so in that four-four groove, you know. You had that like seven-eight time. You're what? <laughs> um, well, seven-eight time is is a regular four-four plus a waltz on the end. Right. But that's a that's well, a beautiful way to dissect it and tear it apart. Well, that's the way I was taught. Yeah. Yeah. The one string thing kind of came in with your experience with uh, uh, Johnny Lee Hooker, right? That's right. It was the same advice that uh, to play one string up and down. And uh, yeah, but John Lee actually told me to take all the strings off but one. So that was a little more, you know, I'm sure that John Lee Hooker and a lot of these guys I, I know would do things like uh, in the middle of the night, they'd take one as a wire snip and snip a piano wire. Yeah. Because each key, each uh, note on a piano has uh, three or four strings to it. Right. So you would snip one and then take it and nail it to the side of a, of a barn or what, whatever piece of wood and use a slide on it or your fingers so that you began with one string and that's what he was advising me to do then to work with two strings and then three i still use that thought process to to uh parse out what i'm going to be playing yeah how so like well i forget what i just said so <laughs> like uh, you use that process <laughs> that thought process yeah. of building off one string, right? Like, is that phrase yeah. phrase wise or like song wise? Do you start like that? You know, it just depends on if you can uh, see the intervals. Like, there's only two types of thirds, right? A major third and a minor third. I mean, this gets pretty technical because you can't have a, a, a flatted third because you'd run in I mean a, you can't go further than a flatted third because that would be the two right and you can't go above it because that would be the four right so so in terms of the written music and discussions of music um, those are the limits major or minor right and then you just stack them like major on top of a, a minor on top of a major on top of a minor is a mixolydian. It's a it's a, a 
flattened seventh chord. You you have an interesting way of thinking of music theory. You, you call it an achemical way, an alchemical way. Alchemical. Yeah. Yeah. And is it like ratios that make sense with that? I found that really interesting. Absolutely, ratio is uh, you know the, the basic structure. It's like the atomic structure is in, in built-in ratio. <laughs> The lower the ratio, the more pleasant the uh, sound. Right. And the more dissonant you get, uh, it's just weird ratios. So it's almost it's off. It's not even in the sense of it mathematically, and it makes that dissonant sound. Like a tritone would probably have a fairly dissonant um, uh, um, ratio. Then, yeah. That's right. It has the the worst ratio of any interval on a guitar right. or a piano or anything. That's fascinating. However, it, it drives the music uh, because it's so discordant that you've got to move from it and have a resolution. Right. And the resolution is to the fourth of whatever you, whatever you were playing. So... I don't know how much of your audience is going to be able to follow any of this. <laughs> it's a fairly, yeah. <laughs> fairly musical but, audience. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so uh, Joey Ramone was kind of only on level two then, right? Joey? Yeah, yeah. You told me, uh, or not you told me, I read in your book. Yeah. I've been, yeah. you know, uh, on a side thought. He had a guitar with, he had a guitar with like one string on it. Or no, it was two strings. Right. Right. And I said, where are the rest? I'll help you put them on. He says, I can, those are the only two I can play, Richie. I can't play six. You... Same, same notion. Right. So he wrote his songs on two strings. What a fascinating character, man. Yeah. Yeah, I love Joey. Joey was a good guy. But it, <laughs> he'd be on level two of John Lee Hooker's, uh, um, one string, uh, one string, uh, uh, course. <laughs> Correct. Was it, I was going to say your book, I just got finished reading your book and you write it in such a way that it sounds, and I've listened to a few interviews post reading it or during the midst of reading it. And you got a way of writing that sounds like, like you do a very good way of conveying how you speak with your book. Like after listening to some, uh, um, some interviews, it's like, this is how Richard talks. Well, I, did, I used a voice recognition software to write the book. So I didn't actually type. Oh, cool. The, I actually spoke the book. I just told stories and, uh, you know, and it would type for me. That's awesome. Occasionally, they would make a mistake. Right. You know, so you had to correct it here and there. But uh, towards the end, it, it got it got very, very good at determining what you were what you were saying and typing it correctly. Like blue, meaning uh, the wind blew, the right. color blue. You know, it actually could differentiate that after a while. Okay, yeah, I was gonna like you, blue. You can be written right, 
but it can in the context be wrong. That's oh, that's cool. Did yeah. that did that help like with the process of compiling these stories, like verbally, like sharing them? Well, sure. The verbal verbal uh, stories are so much easier than written stories because when you write, you're you're removed at least one more level from uh, communication. Right. Because you still have to think in words. Yeah. In order to write something down and pass it to another person. As in, I don't know, maybe like with a, there's like verbal verbalisms we all have like in communicating that like may, yeah. when you write it out, you don't write that. Or like when you write it out, maybe it doesn't come across the same. Yeah. Well, the syntax is or the difference. The rhythm is different because right. you're breaking breaking up your speech because nobody can uh, well very few people can type as fast as they talk yeah for sure there are people who do that though and uh i wish i were one of them but i'm not i remember uh, they taught typing in high school one yeah. semester and i thought uh it was the worthless, a worthless class. The type typewriters were going out, and then uh, then the computer comes. Now you've got to learn to type. It's uh, to communicate at all, practically, unless you're actually with somebody. Right. No, it's definitely. Uh... When I was in high school, we had the same thing where they put like these like little like uh, blockers over your hands so you can see, you know, you're supposed to like learn where the keys are. I was awful at it. <laughs> what, by feel? Yeah. Yeah. You're supposed to learn it by feel, know where like T and G and F is, you know. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> it was, it was all right. I was no good at it. Um, I'm a one finger typer. Uh huh. <laughs> well, I'm like a two, two or three finger typer, but I. That's pretty I, good. I hate typing. I still do. Same. It, well, let's say it's distasteful to me. I don't hate it. That would be a waste of a good energy. Sure. Good point. Um. Peter Loffinger. Now I've been talking to a, a few um, a few guys from the Cleveland scene. Like I just talked to Dave Thomas. And uh, Adele Berté, and uh -huh. she, she just put out this book about Peter Loffinger. Um, and you guys had Loffner. <laughs> you guys had a fairly interesting relationship. I hardly knew him, except for the time we television went to Cleveland and played a show. You know, I didn't. I didn't really know him. He uh, really was. Uh, I guess, besotten with yeah. Tom. And he had a pretty, if, according to Adele's book, interesting relationship with Richard Hell. He did? Yeah, apparently he would call him all the time, and, like, he, like, idolized Richard, and, like... Oh, I, yeah. And I guess Richard would kind of be like, uh, you got a way to go, kid. And, like, he'd get all upset about it. And, like, there's a story in her book about him being all distraught from getting in a screaming match over the phone and like he was also writing writing um the voidoids up and stuff um and like shooting mm. shooting a gun in an apartment or some crazy thing 
It's a pretty wild book. Leaving New York, and the first stop was Cleveland, right? The first time television played out of out of New York City was yes, Cleveland. What was what was that? How dramatic of a shift was it from from New York to the Cleveland scene? It was pretty uh, pretty good. Yeah, transition actually. There were a lot of people that that came to the show, and uh, it was a success. That for first out of town gig, that's a tough one to pull off. Usually, you play the nobody, you meet the other bands, and they set you up for the next time around. <laughs> right. Um, so that was with Rocket from the Tombs, which you eventually produced and played with. Correct. That is correct. That. Peter Lautner died early, very early, uh, from his alcoholism and just, I guess, his pancreas and couldn't take it. Yeah. And liver. And shame. Shame to die of alcoholism. It's really a, a shitty way to go. But on the, with the, the shifted to the positive of the record, what was it like kind of going back and stepping in that scene? Because when you wrote about the guys in the uh, the Rocket from the Tomb guys in the book, there's like this chaotic kind of mess of people yelling at each other and fighting before the show, and one guy's tripping. What was it like years later to come back and basically kind of produce and manage that? Well, it was uh, it was exactly that. I mean, they were still arguing. <laughs> and, and, uh, I went to Los Angeles to rehearse with them, and uh, like within five minutes of being on stage, uh, Cheetah Crumb walked off stage, and and David was uh, sitting with his head in his hands, and I mean it was a, just a bad scene. I thought the band was going to break up before we ever played one show, and that that band uh, just continuously argued. But somehow you guys pulled it off. Somehow we pulled it off for a while. A brief, yeah. a brief. I mean, Rocket from the Tombs. Technically, I guess David Thomas owns the name because he puts out Rocket from the Tombs records with nobody yet from the Rocket from the Tombs except him, mm. and maybe uh, uh, Craig Bell. Okay. The bass part, but other than that, it's just his show. Now, what was it like working with John Doe? Well, John's a great guy. He was very frustrated with the record company and uh, that Geffen, and they had made him. I didn't know this at the time. I got a call from a guy named Gary Gersh, who is the A and R man, and he asked me if I was willing to go play with John because he needed some street credibility. And uh, so I went, joined their, their band, John's band. Yeah. And uh, that was terrific. John was, John was great. Have you heard Meet John Doe, that record? Yeah. We did. Yeah, it's a good, good record. Was it a, how much of a um, shift was it to fit his style, like, com, uh, like as far as like it had more of the yeah, kind of country thing? It was kind of easy for me. Yeah. Yeah. 
a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, no, he seems he's one of those guys that's road dogging it still, like, well, until the pandemic. But, like, X, when they got back together, they would come every, they, they do a tour, like, every year. Uh-huh. Like, those guys hustle. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> they, um, yeah, I suppose I don't hustle enough. Say what? I suppose I just don't hustle enough. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a there's like a balance to it, right? Like you can only yep. put it uh, take in and put out as much as you take in. Yeah. Do you get that itch now? Do you get that itch to go play now that we're all kind of like set in place? Yeah, it's uh, been a weird uh, year off. And I'm looking forward to getting back to normal or whatever normal is going to look like. Because it certainly won't be the same, but uh, I'm just hoping that we can. I got one shot, and I'm supposed to get another later this month to be vaccinated, and uh, so I will feel pretty pretty safe then. But how do you get an audience to come out and see you when there's this much, you know, fear and trepidation? Although I guess if you're a, a spring breaker, you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's 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 fascinating who um who really feels like affected by it and how yeah. each state is kind of like handled it in a unique way. Like Ohio like I don't know how Tennessee is. I know PA is pretty shut down. Um and like Ohio's like kind of middle. Like there's some stuff is that's it? open. Really? Yeah, some okay. stuff's open, some stuff's not, and like there's right. there's guidelines, but they're they're it, it you know I mean it's it's very like middle of like I, I, you can go here, but you got to put that on and sit over there. Um, Are you in Ohio? Yeah. What part? Um, I'm like 20 minutes outside Cleveland. Oh, okay. So that's cool. why I, I was so interested about Peter and your your time with uh, Rocking in the Tombs because like. That's like sure. local, local legend. By the time we, uh, well, by the time I joined them, everybody was living in a different city. Right. So it was weird how we would, we would have to pick a spot to, that was in the center of where, you know, we were dispersed in order to uh, get ready and rehearse for a tour. Yeah, because I think uh, Dave Thomas, was he in um, the UK at that point? Yeah, he was living in Bristol. Okay. So, yeah, they get hold of that guy really hard. Gotcha. But he, he his mother had a farm, oh. or has a farm in Pennsylvania. And he would use that as his base of operations. Gotcha. I had never been there, but, uh, you know, that's where he went, came from. When he was over here, he wouldn't go back and forth from England that much. Right. Well, rightly so. It's it's not an easy not an easy trek. Okay. No, it isn't. <laughs> um, what can you tell me about um Albert Anderson? Albert Anderson was uh, one of my best friends in at a certain period of time when I was like seventeen, eighteen. Another guitar player, 
and he went on to play with Bob Marley and the Whalers, and he still does that. I mean, uh, Bob is gone, or well, most of those guys are gone, but reggae lives on, and uh, Albert's like the only American to have been in Bob's touring band. That's amazing. So, pretty amazing, that's right. One of my best friends ended up with Bob Marley and the Whalers. Were you guys play, yeah. playing music together at, at one point, or were you just friends, and then he kind of blossomed into guitar? No, we played, we played together, Okay, uh, but usually with one, we, we would like to take a guitar to school and, and sit, sit in the uh, student lounge and pass the guitar back and forth. Skipping class, <laughs> or? Skipping class, you bet. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't even remember a single classroom episode that year. Yeah, that sounds like a good year. <laughs> yeah, it was a good year for, for memory loss. <sighs> that's that's it's amazing that like the one he was able to fit in with that crowd and stuck with it, especially with the loss of Bob. Um, now Bob's music uh, had a profound effect on you later on. Um, there's a story you you share in your book. About the the song African Herbsman and how yeah. that chant about the transplanted heart. Helped. Yeah, that helped me at one point. It was like a a gift from heaven. That that refrain. Right. Almost like a mantra. Almost like a mantra. That's that's correct. That kept me kept me alive. That's amazing. When did uh, when did Kundalini yoga really become a practice? Nineteen ninety. Nineties. Nineteen ninety. That's right. That's an intense. Like, I've been exposed to a little bit of Kundalini and like those free. The, like it's complicated. And, like. I had a I had a, a girlfriend who was practicing it, and like uh -huh. I she would try to explain it, and I was like <laughs> I couldn't keep up. And you kind of like in your book you said you kind of like you're practicing it, and you kind of got to the point everyone's trying to get to, and had to work your way back down. Like that's that yeah, it took like over a year to become normal again. Was a, what was it like? I can't really describe it. And it's like having a wordless uh, experience, just impressions flooding the brain, you know, and uh, the uh, eye sense kind of spills out, herniates into wherever you are. You know, everybody has an atmosphere around them. And uh, in that experience, that atmosphere breaks and uh, your eye is all over the place. If you said eye, where do you think it comes from? It comes from your chest or your stomach or your head? Hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I guess that 
really would matter. Like, some people think it's like the the middle of the forehead. I guess it does that chakra run, right? Correct. So for you, was it where was it? Was it the third eye sitch or like? No, it was vertical. Huh. Entirely vertical. Wow. Above my head. Right. Oh, okay, okay. Now I've seen the um, chakra things, and they show like there's the one above, the, like the middle of the forehead. Yeah, well, I wasn't using that kind of map. Right. Exactly, but nor would I explain what I was doing with, to anybody because it's a very dangerous practice. One can end up psychotic or, you know, in grave need of medical attention. Right. And how would you explain that? Though, like, what's going on? Um, I'm taking all this yeah. in. You had, a, <laughs> like, you had a really interesting, like, these breathing exercises. In in the very beginning of your book, as a young child, you explain like how you would just do them naturally. And do you think Correct. that? Do you think that's why the Kundalini thing, like, hits so hard? Because you almost had a whole lifetime of practicing these type of uh, exercises. It could be. You know, that I was primed and ready to, to go off, as it were. I'm also bipolar, A, so uh, I have pretty strenuous uh, mood changes. I'm pretty stable now, but if I, I, it can be really rough. And is it like mood changes as in like, manic type stuff where you like hyper focus on a thing or is it like mood changes yeah i get i get manic it usually ends up with me in a hospital mm. yeah that definitely oh. is intense like and that is a lot of work to manage it right i i've um i've talked with glenn morrow and don ralph oh and, yeah and um but uh and um and I talked with Dave Thomas and um, just all these. Uh, Chris Butler was another guy I want to oh. ask you about. He recorded drums on your on your first record, right? On Alchemy. No. Was it second? Uh, 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 no, like my fourth record, I think. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But Chris is an awesome guy. The anyway, cover does. He's on the cover. Doesn't matter. LP. Oh, okay. Terrific drummer. Good songwriter too. Right. He's been the he's a hustler too. He's always making some crazy projects. Um Right. All those guys just spoke the world of you, so I really appreciate you um taking time out of your day to chat with me. Um, oh. Thanks for your interest. Of course. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Richard, you have a wonderful rest of the day and Okay. Thank you. You too. Thanks. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye.